Hello everyone, this is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. I am delighted to welcome our 14th guest to the SIOP Conversation Series, Dr. Paul Sackett, who's joining us from the University of Minnesota. Before starting today's conversation, I want to remind you all that the majority of today's questions were submitted by you, our listeners, in advance of the broadcast. I want to thank you for your contributions to the series. Also, I want to remind you that all episodes of the SIOP Conversation series are recorded and published as a podcast on iTunes and Google Play and are housed on the SIOP Conversation series landing page. Now, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Paul Sackett, who is the Beverly and Richard Fink Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of Minnesota. His research interests revolve around various aspects of testing and assessment in workplace, military, and educational settings. His work on issues of fairness and bias in testing includes frequently cited 1994, 2001, and 2008 American Psychologist articles. He has long been active in the area of the assessment of honesty and integrity in the workplace. He also published extensively on the assessment of managerial potential and methodological issues in employee selection. He served as founding editor of PSYOP's journal, Industrial and Organizational Psychology, Perspectives on Science and Practice, and editor of Personnel Psychology. He has served as president of PSYOP, as co-chair of the Joint Committee on the Standards for Educational and Psychological Testing, as co-chair of the committee to revise PSYOP's principles for the validation and use of personnel selection procedures, as a member of the National Research Council's Board on Testing and Assessment, as chair of APA's Committee on Psychological Tests and Assessments, and as chair of APA's Board of Scientific Affairs. He is the recipient of the Herbert Henneman Award for Teaching from Minnesota's Industrial Relations Center, the Human Resource Division of the Academy of Management's Career Achievement Award for his research, and the Lifetime Service Award from the National Academy of Sciences for his service. He is also the only person to receive Lifetime Achievement Awards in the three domains of teaching, research, and service from PSYOP. And he has been awarded an honorary doctorate by Ghent University in Belgium. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you. <clears throat> you spent a good chunk of our half hour on that bio. Oh, dear. <laughs> Goodness. Yes, that was, uh, that was pretty extensive, but I think that's reflective of your accomplishments. Oh, and I know we're dear. all very excited to dive in today. Um, and, and so let's do that. So to begin, could you tell us a bit about your background? How did you get into IO psychology, and how did you decide on your career path? Well, I was a psych major, undergrad, Marquette University, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and just taking the broad array of psychology courses, and there's a couple I was really drawn to, got to, was very interested in social psychology and started doing some research with a professor there, um, was very intrigued by the course in psychological tests and measurements, and also started doing some work with, with the professor teaching that course. So I had, had those two interests in mind uh, when I stumbled upon IO psychology. I think like many schools, Marquette is one of, the, one of these schools that we did not have any IO psychologists on the faculty. Uh, I got to know the faculty a little later and then it was revealed that, that they, you know, they drew straws and the short straw had to teach the IO course. So this was not, <laughs> we didn't have anybody equipped to do it. So I took a course in IO taught by a, 
uh, a scholar whose focus was animal learning. He ran a pigeon laboratory, uh, but he was a, a good guy and he dutifully worked his way through through the textbook with us. But uh, just that uh, it you know, the light went on and said, oh look, this brings together these different interests, all the elements of social psychology, issues and tests and measurement with an applied focus and the applied focus really, really spoke to me. So that made me say it's going to be, it's going to be IO. Um, so applied for grad school. Um, that was fun. I met my wife as an undergrad and she wanted to do graduate work in, in, in chemistry. And as we all know, IO is a pretty specialized field and analytical chemistry was also pretty specialized. So this was sort of the dual career compromise. What school has both programs? Will somebody take the both of us? And, and we ended up at Ohio State. Um, and there, uh, it was interesting one. I, I, I spent most of my time there uh, fully expecting a, a, a career in practice. I didn't, I wasn't envisioning myself as, as an academic at all. Um, somehow the faculty seemed you know, distant and remote and, and these, these scholars who, who, who did great things and I just didn't see how I could do something like that. The notion of how am I ever going to come up with a, a, a lifetime's worth of, of research ideas. But somehow as time progressed, uh, got involved in various projects, had some success, had some stuff published, and ended up, uh, when I finished, I applied for both academic and, and practice jobs, but took, a, took an academic job. And so let's try it, see if it works. We can always change. And it, it clicked, it worked. And um, well, I'm starting my 41st year on a university faculty this fall, so I don't know where the time went. In my mind, I'm still the young up-and-coming guy trying to, trying to prove myself. That's a, that's a phenomenal um, a phenomenal introduction, and I think it speaks really well to how you've been able to really to model that science practitioner focus in your work. Yeah, I mean that has been the, the dominant value. I mean, the, from from day one, the applied nature of the field is 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 what resonated to me, and so I'm 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 drawn to um, to research topics and questions. Uh, where there really is is some value. Um, <clears throat> one of the, oh, pretty early in my career, I I became editor of personnel psychology, and the journal at the time had a had a mission statement, and this was pre-computer, so I was typing all the decision letters on a you know you know typing them all out, um, and 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 we had a mission statement, and I typed it over and over again, and. and some so many times in a decision to an, an author, I said, "Look, you know, one of the key criteria for personal psychology is immediacy of, of of implications for personnel practice." And so that immediacy of implications theme was a, a big one and has been one all my career. That's um, that's fantastic, and I think that's a good segue into a question to dive a little bit more into some of your research. So your research. As we heard from the introduction, spans many areas with different populations, including the workplace, the military, and education. No pigeons, to my knowledge, despite, no the, <laughs> despite no the, initial, the initial start. Um, what differences have you found when working with these populations? Um, yeah, it's really interesting. That's something that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm happy that I've had the opportunity to do this, to work in. Um, what I've realized, in effect, is 
there are three major options available to young people around age 18. You finish high school and your choice is continue your education, you know, um, move on to college, um, move immediately into the workplace, or join the military. And so these, these three major choices, and so all three of them um, have a lot in, in common in terms of um, they're making selection decisions and they're using tools and instrument, instruments that are, I find, uh, quite similar. Uh, we may use different labels or names, but, but um, I found it really useful to, to realize that, that we're really trying to do the same thing. Um, you know, the military will give the armed services vocational aptitude battery. Uh, colleges and universities will give the SAT or the ACT. Employers will give any of a huge array of, uh, of different tests. Um, but uh, in many ways, they're getting at, at very similar constructs. Uh, there's a big cognitive component to the screening that's involved in, in all of these. And what's really interesting is that in all of the domains are, are over the last decade or two facing the same struggles with trying to add more and more of the what we sometimes call what the non-cognitive domain to what they to what they assess. So um, rather than viewing these as different silos, I find it really interesting to learn from one another and and, and look at the issues when uh, you know. Higher ed is looking at adding situational judgment tests to their screening the same way employers are looking at adding situational judgment tests um, to their screening. So the, the the similarities I think are you know you're you're dealing with some similar populations and you're uh, and you're interested in a, a very very similar set of constructs. At the same time, I think there's some really interesting differences in the way it all works. Um, the, probably the, the most vivid, I think, is the fact that let's contrast higher ed, ed uh, admission with employment. Um, uh, what's done in higher ed admission is so terribly visible. Everything that's being done under the public eye. If colleges and universities sort of decide, oh, let's 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 add, for example, a situational judgment test to our to our entry test battery, everyone would know about this. People that are involved in putting together coaching programs would be saying, "What can we do to try to help people um, you know, score well, beat the test, whatever you want to call it?" Um, so the notion that it's so visible, so public, and in contrast, in the world of employment, it's so dispersed, so diffuse. I mean, the typical candidate shows up for a, a applies for a job, and it's sort of, "Oh, I'm taken by surprise to discover that there's." A test or a batch of tests they're being asked to take. Um, so that 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 makes the scenarios um, turn out to be, I think, in, in different and interesting ways. There's just there's some things that we can do more readily in the employment world, uh, just due to this. You know, it, it's such a um, a dispersed and diffuse marketplace. Um, the you know, things the things that that higher ed or the military struggle with due to the, uh, the very public nature of, uh, uh, of what they're up to. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Um, and it, it's interesting that you've highlighted that there seem to be sort of more similarities uh, than, than perhaps some of the differences, which is, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. Much yeah. of your um, – sorry, please go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna I was going to shift gears here to talking a little bit about um, specifically testing and assessment, and 
Um, much of your work revolves around employee testing and assessment. One of our listeners, Cynthia C., would like to know, to what extent and in, and in what ways do you see social justice playing a role in assessment? Oh my, what a question. Um, um, yeah, I would I think a theme that I've been writing about for decades and decades um, <clears throat> is the, the often tension we see between uh, selecting to maximize performance and selecting to maximize diversity, which would seem to be the place where social justice is, is playing out. And uh, what has come to be realized is that um, in virtually, you know, virtually every case we look at, the solution that's diversity maximizing is different from the solution that is performance maximizing. And so choices have to be, have to be made between them. And, and uh, trying to articulate those choices and helping employers make them uh, is, is of great, great interest to me. Um, I think the real important thing, and, and it's hard to do but uh, critical to do, is to differentiate between uh, what I'll call technical issues and values issues. From a technical point of view, I can document for an employer. If you use this array of instruments and if you sequence them or weight them in, in this way, here's what happens. You know, that's, that's technical. If the question is, oh, one set of weighting um, produces um, a higher level of expected performance of applicants but a lower level of diversity and another weighting produces a a higher level of diversity, but at, uh, at somewhat of a reduction in expected levels of performance, which of those do you choose? And to me, that's the employer's choice. That's not our choice. That's a value judgment. And I see my role, if anything, is helping them understand that and articulate that, it, that, it, that it's values. I don't see it as right for the psychologist to say this one is the, is the right solution. One thing that I've really uh, enjoyed in, in, my, in my research work in, in, in the last decade is um, with, some, with some colleagues who have some, 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 some better technical skills than I do, we've introduced into the IO literature the concept of Pareto optimality, which is you know, a term from, um, from the field of political economy. Um, but it's 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 an approach that helps us quantify these trade-offs whenever you're pursuing multiple outcomes, performance and diversity, and 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 it helps us identify um, you know, solutions that would be optimal in terms of these trade-offs between between different outcomes. So, I think this is long-winded, but uh, social justice I think plays a, a big role. It's a value judgment. Personally, it's really important to me. But I have to understand that what I'm, I've got to differentiate when I'm giving an employer technical information and when we're talking values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's hard to quantify values. That's a difficult thing um, for IO psychologists and certainly I think for organizations as well. I'd, I'd be interested in building on this a little bit because you talked about the trade-offs in terms of two criterion specifically here where we've got performance and diversity. I'm wondering the extent to which is you see employers who are potentially taking a multi-dimensional approach. And so, for example, one of the things that 
Uh, I think we're all kind of seeing what this near full unemployment market is. More and more organizations are saying <laughs> performance, you know, high performance is nice to have, but what we're really looking is to get quality people who will stay. And so as you're starting to think about the Pareto optimization with regard to um, things like performance and diversity and say uh, retention or predicted you know, turnover, how, how are you seeing that come into play where people may be looking for a combination where it's more than two of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the approach that we outline it focuses on two outcomes, and it's sort of hard enough to to <laughs> to, to document with with two. But 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 frankly, um, when when if uh, when all is said and done, there certainly can be many more than two outcomes that that uh, that organizations are, are trading off, right? So we've got our performance, we've got diversity, you, you add uh, turnover to the mix. Um, and if anything, to me, you know, when I've been saying performance, just think of it as what is the, the outcome that you're, that you're most concerned with. Uh, so you could simply substitute turnover for performance in, in, in the whole Pareto optimality uh, scheme. Um, but you, you, you put cost into the mix. Um, you know, there's certainly things we could do, you know, do better, but it would cost more. And, uh, and thinking in Pareto optimality terms helps you sort of quantify, I am giving up this much of a certain outcome in order to save this much money. So I just, I, I like it in terms of it, the opportunity to make it a, a, a systematic rather than a you know, seat of the pants approach to saying, what am I, what am I trading off? Mm, that's helpful. Thank you. So we have the, the Pareto optimality with regard to the trade-offs question. You've also talked a bit about the technical and the values um, weighting with the question. I want to I dive a little bit deeper into some of the technical um, versus values or technical times value, however you want to think about it, values conversation here. Um, with regard to honesty and, and integrity, so within your work on assessments, um, honesty and integrity is, is a place where you have um, conducted quite a bit of research. And listener Lisa F. asks, how can we better predict and screen out applicants with a high likelihood to engage in counterproductive workplace behavior prior to hiring them? For example, are there specific questions in a structured interview that could be used? Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, there certainly is a uh, a good-sized literature on, on the topic of screening for um, avoidance of, of counterproductive behavior. Um, so over several decades, we've had uh, a number of different testing tools developed that, uh, that are aimed at that, at that outcome. Um, so under the general rubric of integrity tests. Um, so those have been well studied and, and, and to me, documented to be to be quite effective. Uh, so the notion of you know we, we can we can screen with with, with these testing tools, um, and those are those are typically self-report. Uh, you're asked various questions and and and, and endorse responses. Um, we're seeing some expansion. We're seeing people develop. I mean, with situational judgment tests uh, really growing in popularity, uh, one can build a situational judgment test to tap all kinds of different constructs, and we're certainly seeing some of them that are, that are designed to get, at, uh, to get at integrity. That's just presenting scenarios and asking people to make choices and responses. So that's, that's shedding light on the topic, and, and that makes sense. Um, the specific 
question asked about um, structured interviews, and I will say that certainly seems conceptually possible. Right? There's no reason that questions in an interview can't effectively be. It's an orally asked situational judgment test. You know, you could you could do it that way. The thing that I would caution against um, is the is the belief that a a single question or a couple of questions are going to get at what you need. Um, I think it's the the classic phenomenon of you know psychometrics that we accumulate information across lots of items. So you know an integrity specific you know, situational judgment test with 15 or 20 items, or you know a test with multiple items, you're accumulating information. Uh, any any one item's got a lot of noise. So I worry about the, the notion that you could do it in an interview with a question or two, but I think some of these um, nice, carefully developed tools have have a lot of promise here, and a good track record, shall we say? Mm -hmm. Beware the easy button. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If there was the magic bullet, we would all be using it. So yeah, that's helpful. Um, mm -hmm. We had we had another listener here who also asked questions on the topic of integrity assessments. And so I um, would love to continue the conversation on those. The listener, RDS, um, asked about advice on integrity testing with regard to covert versus overt tests, uh, as well as whether there's any recent or exciting advancements yeah. in this area that you want to share. I wonder if maybe what we could do, because I know there's some listeners in here that are probably pretty deep in this area, but others that maybe um, unfamiliar yeah, I, I, with the covert versus overt. Could you maybe? I can do a real, real quick. Explaining? I can do a real quick set the stage on that if Thank you want. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I mean, great. Um, yeah. So with, within the area of testing for integrity, um, two commonly used labels uh, for different types of tests. So the one we call overt, that's wide open. It's very clear to the test taker what this is all about. So the questions are, what percentage of people do you think steal from their company? If somebody was caught stealing $15 from the employer, what should happen to them, uh, you know, questions like that, and often culminating in fill in the blank, what's the dollar amount of cash and merchandise you've stolen from your current employer in the last month? Uh, so very, very clear what you're getting at. The covert are um, items that look like they would belong in a typical personality inventory. They don't per se and explicitly ask about theft or wrongdoing, um, but uh, they shed insight into um, you know, it's self-control, conscientiousness, uh, these, these, these underlying attributes that really seem to be um, at the heart of this integrity construct. So uh, there's, there's a wide variety of commercial instruments in each of these two camps. And so the interesting question is, is the relative value of, of each? And, and I don't have a, a really strong preference. Um, I can make different arguments, and I think a lot of it depends on you know, what employers trying to do. Um, here's 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 two different arguments you hear. Some people in favor of the overt test will say, it, uh, in addition to its value for screening, just the use of it delivers a message and makes clear to the test taker that that theft, wrongdoing, counterproductivity is a real concern to this employer. Some employers think it's a good idea to make that statement, and so that's seen as a plus. And others would turn around and say, um, I don't want to uh, be in people's face that much with these clear and blatant questions about wrongdoing, and I want to shy away from it. So again, we're into, we're into values again. Uh, in terms of empirical evidence, it turns out to be really interesting. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a 
nice meta-analysis. My colleague Denise Owens in the office next door to me uh, has the classic meta-analysis on integrity tests. And, and I find this really fascinating. Um, if you do the typical way people talk about meta-analysis, you say, oh, mean validity for the overt tests is 39. The mean validity for the, per, for the covert or personality tests is 29. 39 beats 29, so overt's the winner. Um, and if you push it a little bit further, you see something really interesting. Um, this is the table, uh, I bang on the table always on this topic. Um, I wish that as psychology developed a century ago, when we developed the correlation coefficient, we had developed a habit. Every time you report a correlation, you, instead of saying the correlation is 39, you say 39 plus or minus and give the values that give you the 95% confidence interval around it. I think it would make us think very differently about the work we do. When you apply that to integrity, here's what you get. Overt tests, mean validity 39, plus or minus 26. Personality, mean validity 29, plus or minus 04. Hmm. So one of them has a higher mean, but it also has a lot more variability. On average, you do better with overt, but you're also at much greater risk of being in a setting where it doesn't work very well at all. Personality, the mean's a little lower, but you can count on getting a finding very close to that mean. So I think that's a really interesting type of issue, and that's taking into account uh, the uncertainty whenever we're presenting quantitative information is just really, really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, that's a very helpful summary. So <clears throat> asked about the recent and exciting advancements in this area, and this actually transitions to the next oh, question okay. as well. So I wonder if we can bundle this and maybe talk about okay. these together. So listener John R. asks, what do you envision for the future in employee selection? What do you believe to be some of the most promising and most perilous um, kind of potentialities of this future state? Um, yeah, I, I think the selection field is really exciting as we move forward, and clearly, um, you know, technology-enhanced assessment is the driving feature, and that's on everybody's mind. The things that we can potentially do with technology, um, I think, offer our great promise, and at the same time are the things we need to be most cautious about. Um, uh, for example, uh, uh, my, my personal belief is that all in all, I, I'm, I, I'm a believer in um, sampling behavior. If I can see what people actually do, that's more informative than, than having them uh, you know, check a multiple choice question or box about it. And I think technology is going to help us do more in the way of behavior sampling, and I think that's going to be really interesting. I mean, when obvious, I mean, the whole gamification uh, movement, we can create scenarios where we can uh, sample behavior in different kinds of settings. I think that's got promise. We've got to be cautious. We've got to be careful. I think a really important question is, is the way people behave in a game the same way they behave at work? The notion that, hey, uh, you know, when I, when I play games, oh, I love risk-taking, that doesn't mean that you're a risk-taker at work. So I want to make sure that we're cautious about that. Um, but if, well, let me just for one minute describe a, I've got a, a paper that colleagues and I have uh, just published this year. Um, we take our typical situational judgment test um, where we here's a scenario, here's four choices, and then you pick the best, pick the worst, that type of thing. Um, now, what, what, what we did in this study 
is uh, instead of having people choose the best from a multiple choice option, they you know, saw the scenario, they're at a computer, they got headphones on, there's a microphone, they simply actually responded. We got live open-ended response. And so the notion of behavior beats um, you know, picking an option from a list. And so we're doing this, and, and we, we find some nice results that reduced uh, uh, subgroup difference. This will contribute to diversity, which I think makes it really interesting. Uh, but the issue is uh, scoring and coding these is time-consuming. But now the, you know, the next step in this is um, making use of technology and working towards automating the scoring process. And I think doing that is going to make this kind of thing um, more interesting and more valuable. So I, I, think, I think we're just opening up the possibility to have less multiple choice and more behavior. And I think that's well, looks like we're already running short on time. I'm going to emphasize that as probably the theme that I think is going to be uh, our, our most promising direction moving forward. That's fantastic. I think that, um, that's a really great example highlighting the progression from uh, should do to would do and multiple choice mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. actual mm -hmm. behavioral do um, within these, within these um, situational judgment types of, of situations. This is fantastic. Um, I, as you mentioned, we are running short on time here. What I would just ask, do you have any closing comments or words of advice for listeners out there who may be inspired to pursue a path similar to yours? Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, I mean, personally, I feel honored and blessed to have had the chance to do this. I think I have the best job in the world. I'm uh, a guy who's passionate about research, passionate about teaching, working with students, and uh, I, you know, I'm thankful every day that I've had a, had 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 the chance to do that. Uh, the good thing about our field is there's so many different directions you can take from from the teaching to uh, uh, in-house psychologists to um, you know, consultant roles, um, and you know, find your way, give it a try. If one doesn't work, try something else. But the, the, the great thing is that we have such a rich array of options available to us in this field. Well, on behalf of all our listeners, I want to thank you for pursuing your passion in a way that has benefited our entire field and, and so many of us with the world of work. So thank you for all you do. Um, really thank you for, for today and for an interesting and engaging conversation, for taking the time to speak with us. We had many, many, many more questions that were submitted than we had time Oops. to cover today, <laughs> which is okay. the case, which is always the case um, with the, the conversation series. We had many people who were eager to, to, to learn from you and learn from your experience okay. coming into this conversation. And listeners, thank you for joining today's discussion. Please join us for our next conversation on December 18th with John Boudreau, the Research Director for the University of Southern California's Center for Effective Organizations and Professor of Management and Organization at Marshall School of Business. In the new year, we'll be chatting with Alexis Fink at Facebook and Wayne Cassio at University of Colorado Denver. As we build out our lineup of conversation series guests for 2020, we'd love to hear who you'd love to hear from. So please send us your suggestions for Leading Minds Shaping the World of Work to have on this show at psyopconversationseries at gmail.com. Again, that's psyopconversationseries, all one word, at gmail.com. Paul, again, thank you so very much. Very welcome. All, until next time, take care.
拜拜。